So you start your startup, you go broad, you see lots of different types of customers, and then you look to see where you're getting traction. You look to see who's active, and then you narrow down. You literally get rid of everybody else. You change the name of the company to cater to that group. You know, change how the product works to cater to that group, give them everything they need, make sure it's a white hot center, and then you will go broad again. So it's broad, narrow, broad. And most people say, well, I can't raise money unless I promote the broadness. Like, well, that is hard. Oh, but I can't actually get the product to work unless I go narrow. Yes, that's hard too. That's why you're an entrepreneur. And that's why if it works, you'll make tens or millions or a hundred million or billions of dollars and everybody else will just get a regular salary. Hey everyone, our guest today is James Courier. James is a five-time founder, an angel investor in DoorDash, Lyft and Patreon and a founding partner at a venture capital firm, NFX. Before becoming an investor, James was the co-founder and CEO of Tickle, one of the internet's first successful user-generated content companies. Tickle grew to the 18th largest website in the world with over 150 million registered users before they were acquired in 2004 by Monster for $110 million. It was during this time that James realized the power of network effects as the core growth driver of both B2B and B2C successes across every vertical. As a lifelong learner and developer of talent, James loves sharing wisdom among founders. He speaks regularly at numerous industry conferences and has been featured in Forbes, Fortune, Harvard Business Review, TechCrunch, and Silicon Valley Business Journal. During this episode, we discuss about the importance of the founding team and learning velocity. We discuss about network effects and the white hot center and touch upon some books recommendations across entrepreneurship, finding oneself, and marriage and relationships. Enjoy. Alrighty, we're recording. James, Happy New Year. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Of course, such a pleasure. I see that you're wearing a jacket. Is it is it cold there? Well, I'm in San Francisco and it's rainy and chilly. It's not as cold as it is in Oslo, obviously, but I always wear something that has the NFX on it. The merch, love the merch. Do you guys have like several types of merch? We have so much merch. We have jackets, we have hats, we have socks, we have t-shirts, we have long sleeve shirt. I mean, we've got a lot of merch. We've got bags, we've even got paddle, what is it, pickleball rackets. Like, so we've gone to the max with, with merch. We have a lot of fun with it. It's not that expensive and, and it's good fun. We have 50 people on the team. Do you also kind of give it around or is it just like for internally for your team? Yeah, we do. We give it around, you know, for people who are sending us deals. We'll give them these big, thick, beautiful jackets with fluffy NFX on it, or we'll give them different hats. Or yeah, there's lots of opportunities to have fun. I don't know you you know this, but at NFX, the founders of NFX, we've built and sold over ten billion dollars worth of companies ourselves, and so we like building. You know, NFX is just our our fourth, fifth startup. You know, we're just having fun building the company, which is happens to be a venture capital firm. That's impressive. And also, I mean, looking at your career, five times founder with multiple exits of hundreds of millions of dollars, I was wondering, like, what is the secret sauce in building and exiting a business? Is there something like a secret sauce or is it like different every time? It's certainly mostly different every time. But if there is a secret sauce, there's only two things, which is to figure out who to recruit. So it's about team building and attracting talent. And then the second thing is, is don't go out of business and plan to have multiple at bats. You know, the reason that for all of my startups, they've all been successful is because we just never went out of business and we kept going until we got lucky. And what I tell people is failure is temporary, success is forever. So if I raise, you know, $5 million and I can try 25 things, if one of them works, 
then the company ends up being successful. So you just have to plan to try 25 things. And emotionally, what that requires people to do, this is the last level, is you have to be 100% excited about what you're doing today, even though you know the probability of it working is one in 20. And that's what most people don't get because they grew up in school. They were told, if you do this, you will get an A. And there's like certainty. There's near certainty. Same thing for big companies. We need to redo the pricing on these products, blah, 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 blah. You do that, you did a good job. With entrepreneurship, it's the opposite. It's very unlikely that what you're doing is going to matter or work. You still have to be enthusiastic every minute of every day moving forward, knowing that. And then when it doesn't work, you're like, fine, I'll just go move on to the next thing without you know, feeling depressed, without getting your team all depressed, without you know, feeling like you were wrong somehow. That's a school way of thinking, not an entrepreneurial way of thinking. And so I think it's hard for people to move that mindset. It's funny that you say that. Actually, this is also like what David Friedberg said over and over again, that it's just very hard to relearn the way of entrepreneurship, whereas like the whole system, to your point, from school to what you do at your job, you're rewarded and most of the times are yeses, whereas like entrepreneurship is most of the times are no's and you just have to iterate. So going back maybe to the point of iterating until you are successful, what do you think is a good learning velocity there and product velocity? How fast should teams think of, okay, we want to bet that this is going to work. We have an assumption. We want to test it. How many weeks? How many months? Because probably you have 18 months. Let's say that you raised around 18 months. So then if you want to have like 25 things, then probably you should go once every two weeks, once a month. What would you recommend? Well, it, it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about a biotech company, that's very different. If you're talking about a company that involves hardware, very different. If you're talking about enterprise software, very different. If you're talking about consumer software, very different. So the benchmarks are going to be very different depending on what sector you're targeting. But you know, when we were doing consumer software, we were doing four experiments a day. We're doing two before lunch and two after lunch. We would relaunch products, you know, four times a day with new metrics, and then we would, you know, get to statistical significance and then we'd move on. And we would do that for years at a time. And also you mentioned NFX. So NFX, the venture firm that you're a founding partner, the name comes from Network Effect. And also I know that the first company that you founded was Tickle, one of the internet's first successful user-generated companies. And from what I read, it was then when you got introduced or when you got into a little bit more depth into Network Effects. Do you remember the moment in which you noticed the Network Effects in the company or within a product, within a feature? Yeah. So we started the company Tickle. It was a consumer internet company. It was user-generated content. It was viral. We didn't spend any money on marketing. We registered 150 million people out of 600 million people who were on the internet at the time. So it was a very popular website at the time. We were acquired by Monster.com in 2004. And we realized about network effects after we got acquired and we were sitting at their headquarters and somebody had just left the room. And I looked at my business partner Stan and, and Rick and I said these guys aren't very bright like they're not running the company very efficiently like the product could be so much better so much easier why are they worth seven billion dollars and we're like oh it's because they have this people can't leave the employers have to advertise here to get people because all the they're getting 40,000 new resumes a day and then the employers want access to those resumes and I said oh there's a two-sided marketplace here nobody can leave these guys are worth seven billion and buying us when our tech team and our product team and our management is much better than their whole company. And so we realized, oh, that's what we need to 
do with our next companies. That's what we need to study. That's what we need to be interested in. So that was 2004. How did your thinking about network effects evolved during time? Well, when we first started studying them, we noticed that there was these marketplace network effects. And then obviously we had been building social networks and matchmaking sites, which have, you know, sort of more direct network effects where every node on the network is the same. So we, we knew there was at least two types of network effects. One was a network and one was a marketplace. And then as we started investigating it, we realized, no, there's actually 10 of them. Oh, no, there's 12. No, there's 14. I think we're up to 17 now. We keep noticing new ones and we keep publishing about them on NFX.com. So if you go to the NFX Bible or, you know, there's lots of articles on NFX about the different network effects and how they work. And then when we invest in companies, because we're a seed investor, right? So we'll do pre-seed and seed investing and we'll put in $3 million into a company in a $4 million round. We'll buy, you know, 16, 20% of the company and then we'll work with them on a weekly basis. And we will point out to them how they can change their product or their sales process to actually add a network effect or two, or then once they get one or two of them, then we do a process of reinforcement where you can reinforce one network effect with others. And so we take people through that. We had an accelerator years ago. We don't do it anymore. We stopped about seven, six years ago. But in our accelerator, we invested in 80 companies and I think eight of them are unicorns. So about 10% became unicorns because we keep helping them build these network effects. And But knowing the difference between the different 17 network effects and what the playbooks are and how they work and how they work together tends to be helpful in designing businesses. Mentioning the Network Effects Bible, which I highly recommend listeners to read, they can find it on the website. You talk about the importance of network density. How can founders build products to promote high density? Yeah. What you have to do is look at who are the nodes on your network. Now, it could be a direct network effect like a Facebook. So Facebook starts with high density by just going after Harvard. Okay. And then they move to the next college, which again, creates density because these nodes are similar. Same thing is true on marketplaces. If you are buying and selling, you know, eBay starts with Pez dispensers, right? eBay starts with Beanie Babies. So you go after density in terms of Beanie Baby sellers and Beanie Baby buyers. And if you can just get that, what we call the white hot center of the density of these networks, and then you get the liquidity going between them or in the network effect of the direct network effect, like a Facebook, when you get all the messages going between people who are really interested in each other, because it's very dense. And I know 10 people, and then I know 100 people on the network. So this network becomes more valuable to me. Whereas if you add 100,000 people that I don't know, I don't care nearly as much. That's network you know, diffusion. You don't want network diffusion, you want network density. Once you get that white hot center in one way or another, you'll be amazed at how quickly it bleeds from there into other nodes and then they create their own pockets. And in fact, this was pointed out in 2001 by a guy at MIT named Reed. And he said, well, Metcalf's law is very interesting, but actually there are sub networks inside of these networks, which are even denser. And that actually increases the value of these networks by an N function, not a squared function. It's like actually more extreme. And so we found that to be absolutely true. Would you then try to build a product, for example, on different customer segments on the marketplace to try to detect different type of what white hot groups to see how they behave? So then you can try to push the different features then in other customer segments within the marketplace? Yeah. Well, what we advocate for is broad, narrow, broad. So you start your startup, you go broad, you see lots of different types of customers and then you look to see where you're getting traction. You look to see who's active and then you narrow down. You literally get rid of everybody else. You change the name of the company to cater to that group. You you know change how the product works to cater to that group, give them everything they need, make sure it's a white hot center, and then you will go broad again. So it's broad, narrow, broad. And most people say, well, I can't raise money unless I promote the broadness. Like, well, that is hard. Oh, but I can't actually get the product to work unless I go narrow. Yes, that's hard too. That's why you're an entrepreneur. And that's why 
if it works, you'll make tens or millions or hundred millions or billions of dollars and everybody else will just get a regular salary, but you're going for the big thing. So yes, you have to do something that's hard. Exactly. And I guess also if you focus on a niche, you learn that niche pretty well. So then the value that you bring is quite high, but at the same time, you can see what's replicable if you want to grow that niche and grow a little bit bigger. Let's talk a little bit about LinkedIn. A lot of companies have tried to build a competitor, but it has tremendous network effects. Could you break down for us? How do you think about LinkedIn in terms of network effects and platform, if you will? So I think we invested in six different efforts to compete with or do a niche of LinkedIn, and all of them went to zero. Mm. You are correct in noticing that LinkedIn's network effect is stronger than Facebook's. It's stronger than Twitter's or Reddit's or almost any other network effect out there. You know, how you break it down is basically that, you know, this is a place where people are making money. And so they're hypersensitive to the value that they're getting from the network in a way that they're really not with Facebook. You know, and with WhatsApp, I can use WhatsApp or I can do Messenger, I can use Signal, whatever. There's lots of different places I can go to do the messaging with the people I care about. But with LinkedIn, there's one place that I have an identity where I'm making money. As a result, Reid Hoffman and the team just got lucky that they had this thing. The other thing that happened was that back when they started in 2003, there weren't other networks that had real names. People were scared of using their real name because of privacy concerns. And it's no coincidence that the two biggest, most important networks ended up being the first two networks that got real names. And there's an article on manifex.com that talks about that, like how important are real names and how you do these profiles and whatnot. And, and LinkedIn and Facebook were the first two networks with real names. And as a result, they ended up being the biggest networks. And so now that they have that network effect, in the same way that Microsoft got their network effect in 1976 by accident, you know, Microsoft is now worth what? 2.4 trillion. Again, like they just won't go away. They get multiple at bats over many cycles because that network effect just isn't going away and LinkedIn's in the same position. Let's touch on the new AI wave, or should I call them waves? As everything is just moving at such a rapid pace. A lot of people call it like the iPhone moment. Most of the companies are going after the obvious use cases like Jasper for copywriting, Descript for audio editing. What do you think are the non-obvious products companies to build here? Well, we encourage founders to think much, much bigger. We think that with AI, you can now completely rewrite the way whole industries work. Like somebody needs to build the thing that eliminates recruiting. AI should be doing 98% of the recruiting job for us at this point. And no one's built the system. You know, you should just think about how to take down entire industries with AI at this point. That's what we're looking for. You know, the idea of it helps you do copywriting because it opens up a wrapper on top of, of OpenAI. It's like, that's not going to be a big company. Got a big valuation for a moment, but it's not going to be a giant company. The Microsoft and Google are going to own that. You know, I think the thing that everyone's got to realize is that incumbents have, because of their distribution capability and because of their brand. So there are four defensibilities in a business. There's network effects, there's brand, there's defensibility, and there's embedding. And if you go to nfx.com and you type in, you know, defensibility is the only thing that matters, or just type into Google nfx defensibility, you'll get these articles that explain this, that those are the four defensibilities in the digital age. And the incumbents have all of them. And you as a startup might be able to get some embedding, you might be able to get some network effects, but you don't have the brand and you don't have the scale. And as a result, what we saw when the mobile phone came is that the incumbents, meaning Facebook, Google, and Apple, they won most of the billions. In fact, you know, I think Apple was worth 40, who were they worth? 40 billion when the iPhone came out. And now for the first time ever, the sort of network effect iOS platform, mm -hmm. um, you know, the phone is a good product, but the iOS is the killer product. That's the one with the network effect. Now they're worth whatever, 2 trillion. So they gained, you know, 1.96 
trillion dollars as a result of that technical innovation because they were the incumbent. They had an easier time getting it. You know, I think if you look at all of the venture-backed companies that were independent, they totaled up to 500 billion in exits, mm-hmm. something like that, 600 billion, 400 billion, something, I mean, including Uber at 100 billion or whatever. Like the venture capital industry and all the founders out there were fed off just a few tens of companies that benefited from the mobile revolution, whereas most of the billions were accumulated by the incumbents. The same thing's going to happen to AI. So in order for you to build a startup that does well in the AI era, you have to go far afield to places that the incumbents just don't want to touch. Number one, you can find a niche that they don't want to touch, or you have to rethink whole industries that they won't even just be able to think about. And by the time they can wrap their heads around it, it's too late and you're already a big company. And so that requires very big thinking. That requires real mental breakthrough on the part of the founders to have a bigger vision. And so those two things, look for niches they don't want and really big thinking. That will give you the open space to build a company before they come in and just squash you, which is what they're going to do to Jasper. And when you look for investment opportunities, do you look at the market and profit margins, see where profit margins can be eaten away or competed away? Or do you look for niches? You're like, okay, what is a niche that maybe a startup can come and build something and then you go and find that startup? Like, how do you go about finding great investment opportunities? You can almost draw a two by two. One is, do we come up with the ideas and look for the company? Mm. Or do we just receive the business plans that come in. And we typically just receive the business plans that come in. We used to be in the business of coming up with the ideas and building the companies ourselves. And the big risk for a successful CEO who's become a venture capitalist is that he thinks or she thinks that they're going to have the ideas and that their ideas are correct. So we need to avoid that. We need to be very studiously avoiding that. So we just receive the ideas that the entrepreneurs are having and then judge them for their merits rather than trying to impose our own thinking on people. That's, I think, a mental model we have. Other firms don't have that, but that's something we care about. And then the second question is, do we look for businesses that are going after existing markets or going after brand new markets where maybe transactions don't even exist yet? The biggest outcomes come from the latter. They come from the businesses that are going after transactions that don't exist yet. Google, Airbnb, you know, these people are creating transactions that hadn't happened before. And so they have much more running room. The other way to look at existing businesses and try to impose software or grab some sort of a percentage of what's already happening, those can create good businesses as well but they're not the biggest businesses. Particularly in the marketplace environment, you can build multi-billion dollar marketplaces, particularly on the B2B side, by looking at existing transactions and trying to get in there and doing it better. But often we even tell the B2B marketplace founders, find people who are transacting, go to new players, new transactions, find things that this aren't happening yet in the market. And don't just try to take a piece of it, but create a whole new thing, because then you'll have much less competition and much more running room much faster. How do you assess investment opportunities at seed? How much weight do you put on the team? How much weight, let's say you put on the product? How much on traction? How do you look at it? Most of it's on the team. I would say 60% on team and then probably 40% on market and market opportunity. You know, we also don't need to know that there's this giant market. I mean, look at Facebook, right? That was photo sharing at colleges. How big is that market? It's not very big. How big is Beanie Babies? It's not very big for even like, so it's okay to go after smallish markets and then realize that you can grow into something much bigger. As long as the team is great, they can navigate that way. So it's 60% team, probably 40% market. How do you assess the team? What do you look for? Do you have some favorite questions that you like to ask the founders just to gauge their way of thinking? I don't know that I have special questions. I probably should, but what I'm looking for is speed. Because if somebody is moving fast and if somebody, their product is developing fast, if their customer acquisition is fast, if they get back to me fast on email, if they can redo their deck, you know, really quickly, speed is the one metric that measures all the other metrics. How well do the founders communicate? How clear is their thought? How much do they know about the market? 
How talented are they? How smart are they? How determined are they? All the things that other people try to measure all rose up into one metric, which is speed. Because if you get along and you trust your co-founders, then you can just go faster. And if you are really talented, then you can just crank out more code super fast. If you know your market really well, then you know which customers to get and you can talk their language and then you close them very quickly. If you really know your business and you're confident and you're going to be a great leader, then you're able to convince me of that with a great deck and a great pitch. And it all happens very quickly. You know, so we'll meet a company on a Monday and then, you know, give them a turn sheet on a Wednesday because we know what we're looking for. And if they're really good, they know what they're looking for. And then off we go. So it's speed is what we're looking for. In closing, let's get personal. Tell me about a moment you struggled in your career life and the learning from it. Because from the outside, <laughs> it just seems that everything was perfect. You founded five businesses, you sold them. Now you're the founding partner of one of the most successful venture firms in the world. Did you ever had a moment where you struggled in your career? Absolutely. Absolutely. We all do. You know, I could name hundreds. I mean, there was one point where we were doing between two and four experiments per day, trying to come up with new products and new businesses. And almost for 20 months, every day, every experiment failed. Imagine doing that for 20 months and how that would make you sad or make you feel like you're not doing well. And that was between, I think, 2007 and 2009. We just couldn't figure out something that was going to work at that time. And we eventually came out with three different businesses that we ventured back that all did well. But there was a long time where we were not hitting and we were just failing and failing and failing and failing. And how do you keep the team together? You know, we had a team of 44 people and we were working on four different projects and doing all these experiments to try to come up with the next businesses. It was a hard time. It was a hard time. And we were wondering if we'd ever figure it out again. Another big challenging time I had was going and, you know, getting involved in starting a company in the healthcare space, you know, trying to help people, trying to cure the American medical system, which is such a mess. And, uh, and it was seven and a half years. Uh, we raised 68 million and sold for 144. And it it was, I mean, what a waste of time. Incredibly difficult business to run. And in the end, you know, everything was against us. All the competitors, even the people who invested in us were undermining us and teaching other people how to compete with us. And it's such a difficult industry to, to make a big success in. That was the biggest mistake I've made in my career is getting into the healthcare space. So I would assume that you guys don't make investments in healthcare. We do, but very few. We're very suspicious because we know uh, how difficult it is. I mean, I have a 16-page document explaining all the reasons why it's hard to win in healthcare, uh, why it's hard to build a big company, a venture scale company in healthcare uh, that we'll never publish because it's too negative. But, you know, as a venture capitalist, you have to be super positive. But yeah, we see through what is very difficult about these healthcare businesses. And that was a hard time for me realizing that, you know, I had spent seven and a half years learning about that area and not going to be super useful anymore. And I could have just stayed in consumer. I could have stayed in B2B software. I, I could have done a lot of better things, but I, I was really interested in sort of helping using software to help. So that was a mistake. Yeah. I just want to go back on those 20 months where you did all these experiments per day, like how are you keeping morale up? How were you re-energizing yourself? Because I would assume that you just have to take it from somewhere. Is it like sports or family or loved one? How are you re-energizing yourself, re-energizing your batteries? It goes back to what I mentioned before, which is choosing your team, right? So I was working with a guy named Stan Chudnovsky and another guy named Adrian Danielli. And the, these guys are salt of the earth, wonderful people, very supportive of me. I'm very supportive of them. You know, I think it's kind of my relationship with Stan is kind of legendary in the sense that it became a giving contest. Like it was never about who was better or who got more money or whatever. It was always just how much can I give you? And he does the same to me. And, and so just having those personal relationships. And then you say to yourself, look, I had a wonderful day because I got to work with these eight people that I love and I respect. And we were all cranking as hard as we could. And it was an exciting thing and it failed and it failed and it failed. But I had a wonderful day because I was with the people I admire. And what else is there in life? So you just keep going until, until you get lucky, which is what we did. We got lucky. 
lucky three more times and created three more companies. Which investors outside of NFX do you admire and why? There's a lot of them. You know, there's a lot of good people. I mean, a guy named Sargur at CRV here in the Valley, he's probably one of the best consumer investors in the world and just a wonderful guy, super helpful to everybody, very thoughtful, very consistent, knows a ton about the consumer businesses he invests in, super helpful to people. Everybody loves the guy. You know, you talk to the founders, they all say he's the most value-added investor they have on their board. And, you know, while Sar might be the exemplar, the sort of number one guy I would mention here, there's literally hundreds of people like that in the venture industry. There are some who I won't mention who are the opposite of that, but it's a very small number, you know, sort of 12, 15 individuals slash firms that you just don't want to work with. But the vast majority of people do a good job. They are supportive. They know they're in a competitive business. I've only been a venture guy now for six years, but and I was an entrepreneur for about 20. So I'm still kind of faking it. But I would say most people, particularly in the Bay Area, have a very helpful attitude because it's so competitive here. And so everyone's on their best behavior and brings their best self. You know, I got to be honest, like the further you get from the Valley, the worse the investors behave. So you get to New York and there's a lot of bad behavior in the biotech space, in the healthcare space among investors on the East Coast. And as you get toward Europe, we've seen tens of companies destroyed by their investors in Europe because the investors somehow have a different mental model than being of service. They think I own this company, I command this company, I tell this company what to do. And that mental model, I think, really hurts companies. And it's something that, you know, slowly we're getting more and more uh, investors in Europe who are not of that mindset, but are more of the Silicon Valley mindset of being helpful. So there's a lot of investors I respect. I mean, a guy named Michiel Cutting, who's out of North Zone, right? I mean, what a great guy, like super in insightful, hardworking, thoughtful, you know, uh, connects people. Everyone loves that guy. So if he asks me to do a favor for him, I'll do it, whatever he asks me to do. Like I, if he wants four hours, he's got it. Because people like him so much and he's done so much for so many people, Mikhail can command a huge network to help the founders that he works with. And so, um, you know, you got to look for guys like that. Wonderful. And I completely agree about Michiel. And I wanted to say, don't get me started on Europe. I guess in Europe probably is 80-20, but in the different direction, whereas like 20 are yeah. helpful and supportful, but 80 not. But to your point, I guess there is a reckoning now and a change in mentality. Also, I think it's helpful that you guys and more firms from the US, you know, invest or from the east side invest in Europe. So then they get to taste the different types of mentality, the focus more on product and not so much on financials, at seeds, and all these differences. If you would start a business tomorrow, where would you look at and what would the first steps be? I would look, I would continue to look at the B2B side. It's been very hard to build consumer tech companies for the last 10 years. There's been very few really interesting breakouts in the last 10 years compared to the prior 20 years. But I still think B2B is fertile. I mean, there's lots of industries which still haven't been had software brought enough to them. You have a lot more incumbents now competing with you for that, but it's still, I think, a more fertile soil than consumer. I would also note that with AI, I think it's going to be possible. And I've written about this in an article called The Three-Person Unicorn. If you go to type in three-person unicorn, you'll get the article through Google. I believe that through AI, you're going to be able to have bootstrapped companies in the tech space again. And not all companies need to be venture-backed, right? Our business model is to find the companies that can be worth a billion or five billion or 10 billion or 100 billion. But if you're an entrepreneur, it might not be that's your road. It might be that you get two or three friends together and using AI, you just 
just build a business that you can sell for $10 million and everybody walks away with a couple million bucks and you do it again and you do it again. You know, maybe sell for 30 million, you know, roll up to a PE shop. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities with AI for very small teams to build businesses. And some of them are going to break through and build $100 million a year revenue businesses, which will then be able to go public and be unicorns that would feed the sort of model that I need. But I think most of them are just going to get bought and for small amounts, but the entrepreneurs will be happy. They'll do something interesting. And, uh, they'll make more money than they need to live a wonderful life. I would suggest that. I, you know, I, I continue to think that uh, crypto should provide some great opportunities as the use cases expand and as the users of that expand. And biotech, I mean, we invest a lot in biotech. And I think that the age of synthetic biology, or we call it tech bio, not biotech, but tech bio, I think we're just beginning with that. I think we've got a good 20 to 30 year run of making very big companies in that space. But that's very specialized. You have to have been interested in that since you were in college, because then you have to get your PhD and figure all that out. But those are areas there where I would look. Super interesting. And actually, one of my favorite authors, Kevin Kelly, has a book called What Technology Wants. But he defines there, and I never thought about it, biology, which is biologic, which is the logic of the nature, and technology, which is the logic of the craft, right? When you are crafting mm -hmm. something, it's not the logic. So it's funny that now we ended up calling something tech bio or biotech, whereas like maybe just should have like a different name altogether. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we use synthetic biology, computational biology, and tech bio are kind of the three words that are competing for that whole area, but it's sliding toward tech bio right now. And that term actually was invented by my partner, Ambri Drory, who owns tech.bio. And his original $10 million investment vehicle is something we were the first investors in. We gave him the first $3.3 to create a $10 million vehicle. And he called that tech bio, tech.bio. And then he came over here to be full-time. So he now runs NFX bio. That's great. I see a lot of companies in biotech or in tech bio that are coming out of Europe as well. So we saw also Credo and other interesting companies. Tell me about a book that had an outsized impact on your life. I would say that Atlas Shrugged is one that I read when I was about 21 years old that had a lot of impact on me in terms of you know being a prime mover and being one of the people who could create and help the humanity move forward. There's another book called The Razor's Edge, which is written by a guy named Somerset Maughan, which is a novel which talks about the difference between those of us who want to be invited to a party because of status and those of us who are pursuing spiritual ends. So it's a story between these two characters and demonstrates and, and shows you that the difference between those two lives. And I think that was very impactful for me as I think spirituality and authenticity and connection is the way to go. And most of us are just busy being status-seeking monkeys and seeking to climb up and get some short-term status from others around us. And so that was a real eye-opener for me. Yeah, there have been a ton of books that have had a big impact on me because I read multiple books a month and have audio books all the time. I mean, increasingly podcasts are doing a great job of shortening the time to learn. Wonderful. Thank you very much for sharing. I'll definitely read The Razor Edge. I think I was thinking quite a lot about the question like who am I and how much of what I want is actually based on mimicry you know you want something because someone else is one so then you go to the party because it's the status and how much is okay what do I actually want to do and how do you discover yourself then but do you discover yourself or do you create yourself you just have to go and build stuff right I think so that's I think that's well said now in terms of founders you asked me what books impacted my life Atlas Shrugged and Razor's Edge but in terms of what books I give to founders I give them Positioning by Trout that's a 1981 book that talks about positioning and branding and hierarchies and whatnot. 
and I give them predictably irrational, particularly chapter four, which talks about the difference between the left brain and the right brain. And then the book by Cialdini called Influence, which talks about the interrelationship between people and networks and how we communicate and support each other. And those three books are books that I give to all the founders that I invest in. Wonderful. Thank you very much for sharing. The last question, if James from 20 years ago, just starting Tickle, would listen to this episode, what would you tell him? Make sure to marry Trina, because I hadn't married Trina yet. <laughs> now I have, and life has been good ever since. Look, I think the only real decision you make in your life that matters is who you marry, because that determines what your kids are going to be like. It determines like where you're going to live. It determines who your friends are. And if you make a lot of money, it doesn't matter. And if you don't make a lot of money, it doesn't matter because life is good. So that's what I would tell myself is that, you know, it all comes down to that decision and it comes down to that relationship. And everything else is just a games that you play to entertain yourself while you're on that journey with that person. So I would focus on that. I would tell people to read books about marriage. I would tell people to read books about how you have a good relationship how you talk to people, how you become more authentic and more open in your relationships. I would have people take seminars like the Landmark Forum and you know the Hoffman Institute. And there's so many different, you know, getting the love you want. Like there's all these different seminars and books and things to spend time on that part of who you are, because in the end, that is geometrically valuable to you in your work as well as in your private life. It is the lowest cost, highest return, lowest risk, highest upside type of investment you can make is working on yourself personally. Working on yourself. No, I love it. James, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. This was an absolute pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you too. And go get them.